I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Leslie Schrock, author, investor, and entrepreneur. Her new book is Bumpin', The Modern Guide to Pregnancy, Navigating the Wild, Weird, and Wonderful Journey from Conception through Birth and Beyond. As many women know, the journey to motherhood is not always straightforward, and Leslie Schrock's was no exception. Before delivering her son, she sadly experienced both a miscarriage and a non-viable pregnancy. Once pregnant, she searched for a modern guide, read academic journals, and studied the research to help her through every stage of the pregnancy, but came up empty. The guides were outdated, didn't speak directly to the modern or working woman, and often excluded the latest research. Instead, she developed a part memoir slash part practical guide that effectively debunks the most pervasive pregnancy myths to help readers to take control of their parenting journey. She was named one of Fast Company's more, most creative people in business, and her work has been featured in publications including NPR, Time, GQ, Entrepreneur, Wired, and the New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. It's a pleasure. So we're talking about modern pregnancy versus, I guess, not so modern pregnancy, which is when I had my kids, <laughs> I'm thinking 20 or 30 years ago. What's the difference? You know, when I went out there, so, you know, it took me 16 months to bring my son into the world. So I had a lot of time to think about this. Um, so, you know, a few things. The average age of first time moms in 1984 was 23 years old. It's now 33 in coastal cities like New York and San Francisco, Uh, even nationally, it's gone up to 27. And so, you know, that's one huge thing. The age of first-time mothers has gone up um, a lot in a very short period of time. Women are now over 50% of the workforce. Um, And yet, you know, what I was finding when I looked for resources, and even in a lot of conversations I had, um, I think that we do a great disservice to working parents. Um, We don't talk about how hard it can be to leave work, return to work, giving people strategies for that. We don't help people, you know, prepare financially, uh, think about that. We tend to think of pregnancy in terms of symptoms, morning sickness, how do you deal with back pain, but we don't zoom out and talk about how the experience really changes your whole life. And so really it, with, with Bumpin', my goal was to step back and say, Listen, number one, pregnancy is not a nine-month experience. It's more like 15, really, and that's if everything goes well. You've got the months to conceive. You've got the nine months of pregnancy. And as anyone who has been pregnant knows, you also have the fourth trimester, which we contextualize as three months. That also is actually much longer to find your new normal. And so that was my goal with Bumpin'. Let's talk about the full experience. Let's talk about how your life, your relationship, your finances, your work changes, and let's not sugarcoat it because let's be honest, it's hard. It's very, very hard to be a working parent, even if you have resources, even if you have childcare. There are lots of compromises to make and think about. Well, I think one of the things that you said, and you, you're mentioning, you're talking about a five trimesters instead of three trimesters. So we can start from the beginning. And your book, as I said, as you and as you've said, it's part memoir, part guideline. So personally, you five trimesters. How did that start for you? Obviously, this was something that <laughs> there were a lot of bumps. So you wanted to share those with oh, all yeah. of us and help us. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that, honestly, that was one of the that was one of the, the goals with the title <laughs> is that I think you know we all think of a bump as like the bump, the baby bump, but you also hit bumps along the way, and so I really wanted to acknowledge that um, you know it's not always a straightforward process. It certainly wasn't for me. Um, you know, the book does have I think of them more as field notes than a memoir, simply because I'm very clear about. This is the science, this is the advice and knowledge that I extracted from over 20 people that I interviewed across every imaginable subspecialty uh, related to taking care of your body and your baby during pregnancy. Um, But yeah, it was not straightforward for me. I was 35 when I tried to get pregnant the first time. Uh, That first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Uh, I was very obviously upset. I think it's, um, you know, something the media is starting to talk about. Uh, actually, today came out with a, a, a piece, a big, you know, chunk of, of uh, content about this this week, and I was really heartened to see that. So, you know, I had a miscarriage, and as soon as I had it, I, I reached out to friends who I knew had had one, and then I found out there were a ton of other people in my life who had also had a miscarriage who had never talked about it. Um, So I realized, you know, as I say in the book, like miscarriage is kind of this club that has millions of members, uh, but no one wants to join and no one wants to talk about. And so, you know, that was my first pregnancy that ended at like five, six weeks. The second time um, I got pregnant two weeks after that miscarriage because I didn't know that you're very fertile after a miscarriage happens. And we weren't being, you know, we weren't being like reckless or anything, but we weren't being especially careful either. Um, but yeah, it was like wham, bam, pregnant again. And I felt terrible the whole time. Um, just as I had before, I had horrible morning sickness, was exhausted, you know, just really having a tough time. And I couldn't shake this kind of feeling that something just wasn't right. Um, I just never felt, uh, very good or confident. I was very anxious about everything related to that pregnancy. And then we found out at 12 weeks, um, when we had our genetic testing done that we came up positive for a condition called trisomy 18. Um, it's, uh, it's fatal. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no happy ending for you. And in our particular case, um, it was going to, so it typically ends in stillbirth. Um, if, you know, if a baby is born at all, it typically dies within four days of birth. In our case, there was no making it that far. Um, things were not, uh, Things were not going to continue. Um, you know, it was a matter of weeks for us. And so we had to make the decision to terminate, which to me was just uh, something I couldn't wrap my head around because it was a wanted pregnancy. I would have done anything possible if there was any chance of it being viable, but it wasn't. And it was more dangerous for me to carry it. And if you want to talk about a topic no one wants to touch, that is certainly one of them. Um, I didn't know anyone who had gone through it. I was devastated. It was the most painful experience of my life. Um, My husband and I, you know, really, uh, we have a great relationship. We still do even post post having a kid. Um, But we had to just rely on the love of friends and family. I went and saw a grief counselor. Um, So, you know, I thought to myself, wow, if this is getting more common as the, you know, average age of first time moms goes up, why are we not talking about this? And so really it was kind of in that space um, I had about two months between the time of my second and third pregnancies. It was kind of in that time that I started thinking about what a book would look like, um, you know, just because I felt like none of these books that I had read or really no one, even in forums online, was talking about 
just these very difficult moments as just part of the process for, for some people. Yeah. Not to be scary, not to freak people out, but just to acknowledge that it does happen, to give people some instruction if it does. Uh, and then, you know, be open about it so people don't feel alone the way that I did. I think we're still hanging on to, and I guess that's what you're saying about a lot of the information and the guidelines we have today, hanging on to that Cinderella version of pregnancy, which doesn't yeah. exist for a lot of reasons. Maybe it never existed, but as you as you talk mm-hmm. about in the book, there are just so many added on things being 35 for your pr- first pregnancy, for instance, and, and I think I actually mentioned in the, in my other show with my other guest, uh, women are getting pregnant when they're 40 years old. And that, that also, there's yep. a whole lot of problems associated with that. So, um, I have to ask you a question. Why does this generation of women talk about we are pregnant. I have to say that's something that really bothers me because only as you're describing your experiences, being sick, being upset, being depressed, you're pregnant. Like two people are parents, but they're not both pregnant. <laughs> I mean, maybe an obsession with the royal family. I'm not sure. Maybe we all want to be queen. I, you know, it, it is a, it is a funny thing. Um, one of uh, one of the areas that I'm actually very passionate about talking about these days, especially because I think it's extremely um, uh, kind of hidden, is that you know for for men uh, they are not going to physically be pregnant, but they are contributors of genetic material. When you hit fertility challenges, the first thing people say is, "Well, you know, you should go see your OBGYN because." it's probably something to do with your eggs. But in a third of all cases, it's men. And we do not test sperm first, which is so crazy because it's not as invasive as getting eggs tested and doing a full fertility workup. Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're going to... I, I'm going to interrupt you because pregnant. I think that's part of our... That's been part of our patriarchal society. And it goes back to what, Henry yeah. VIII cutting off his wife's head because she couldn't give birth to a son. And now we know that yeah. it's the male sperm. Yeah, so that kind of is a carry-through over the ages. So automatically, oh, yeah. yeah, it's your fault. Yep. I mean, and it's I, women's fault. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, listen, like, it is an awkward process to go to the doctor and make that contribution and get tested. I think we have a lot of... Um, you know, cultural associations and just, uh, you know, we get wrapped up in this idea of masculinity being tied to sperm and there are all kinds of things that we kind of have to start, you know, dealing with. Um, but, you know, a third of all, of, of all fertility issues, uh, a third are, you know, women, a third are men, and then a third you either can't figure it out, like it's undiagnosable, or it's actually both of you. So that's the first thing I want to say about the royal we of pregnancy, because if, you know, if we truly are going to be pregnant, I think we have to start uh, acknowledging that men's lifestyle decisions during conception, use of THC, use of recreational drugs, too much drinking, all of that can affect sperm quality. So it's not just about, and I have a whole chapter about this in Bumpin', it's not just about uh, a woman preparing her body. You, your partner should prepare his body too. Um, that's the first thing. The other thing, um, and this is actually why I took the time to, you know, I talked to several therapists and a parenting coach, and I, I really had a fun time, uh, you know, looking for the breadth of, of people that were, you know, that, that could help with, uh, with families uh, managing this process. Um, and one of the things that I recognized was we kind of have two conversations as it relates to parenting. We have books and conversation for the mother, and then we have books for the father. And there are some great books for dads out there. 
However, I don't know why we can't just read the same things here and go through this together if we are going to be pregnant. Um, you know, that's why there are whole sections for partners in the book. Um, there are things, you know, because I think that it can be very hard. I mean, you went through this, you know. Um, even if your partner is great, mine is. He was very good at kind of understanding what I needed. But I also had to ask um, because they're not psychic. So I think, you know, reminding everyone, like, you need to keep communicating. You can't just assume everyone knows what's going on. The earlier you start talking about things like leaving work, going back to work, um, what your expectations are about childcare. So I think actually we need to include men more in the process, be more honest about what this is like, prepare men for the postpartum period, both as a supporter and also um, for their sakes, because this is really never talked about, but over 10% of men experience postpartum paternal depression. Um, so it's, you know, I think it's a very nuanced thing, but it's not just one or the other. I think we really have to start uh, making this a conversation and, and information for both people. Well, I think what you're saying is you're, uh, you want to, or you're expanding the definition of we are pregnant. <clears throat> um, it means yes. a lot. Yes. Which I, I is, love that. I yeah. love that it went there. This is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I do have to get back to when I was throwing up and I was going through 12 hours of labor, I was pregnant and, uh, Absolutely. that was the, you know, completely and, uh, and all the other stuff that accompanies it. One of the other things you talk about, and I noticed this with my, obviously my, I have three small grandchildren and, um, all of these new uh, I, I, professionals, I guess, who are involved in the pregnancy t today, um, midwives, doulas, pelvic floor experts, trainers, physical therapists, all of these people. So let's talk about that because I think that's important and that is far more prevalent than, say, it was 20 years ago. Having um, Absolutely. You know, it was a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, like the, the track of obstetric care, you know, this – process used to be run by midwives. So really what we're seeing is a resurgence uh, of midwifery, which I'm excited about because I think uh, midwives are amazing. I had one at my birth. Um, I gave birth in a hospital as 98% of women do. Um, but really, we used to give birth kind of in a village environment, right? We had experienced mothers, we had midwives, we had other people in the community who were trained in different ways uh, to help a family begin. Um, whether that was, you know, your first child, your third child, your eight, your tenth child, you know, back in back in those days. And so now that we've moved away from that and we understand more about what happens to the body during birth and also how the body has changed, you know, the women's bodies have changed quite a bit in the last uh, hundred years. So um, I think starting to reintroduce, um, you know, midwives into care, OBs are great, but your appointments are going to be short. There aren't going to be that many of them through the course of a pregnancy. And OB is, you know, really focused on your physical well-being, not as much your emotional well-being. Um, OBs are great. I had great experiences with mine. I had an OB editor, um, you know, with, would actually go through all of the clinical information in this book, um, which was just awesome. But, you know, even she acknowledges, like, doulas who are there really for emotional support to coach you and your partner are really filling a gap um, in, in the care model that we, that we utilize in this country today. Um, pelvic floor therapists, which I would love to dive into later if we talk about the postpartum period, you know, we know that over half of women struggle with a pelvic floor issue some point in their lives, over half, and it 
a lot of the time it happens during menopause, but it also happens in the form of incontinence and in some cases pelvic organ prolapse right after birth. Um, but OBs are not trained in pelvic floor therapy, nor do they really even know how to identify anything other than diastasis recti, which is when your abs split. Um, so, you know, in France, this is just the standard of care. You go see a pelvic floor therapist 10, 12 times after you give birth in those first six months. Um, so really, that was another goal in, in Bumpin was to say that obviously, like maternal outcomes are not great in this country. There are many places around the world that have much better outcomes. What can we learn from those places and what can we bring here and what can we start to talk about uh, so that, you know, insurance will cover it and, you know, it's just kind of a standard of care. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important issue, too. Insurance doesn't cover all of these professionals, and that's a problem. I mean, even lactation therapists or lactation specialists, I should say, <clears throat> if one needs help uh, nursing your babies, they're not there. Or if they are, they're, they're very costly, very expensive, and insurance doesn't cover it. So I guess that's a huge, I mean, that's a huge issue, uh, insurance and, and yeah. covering all of, yeah, all of this care. I guess first we have to admit that uh, we have to talk about, just as you do in your book, that we need the standard, we need the standard of care. And you really go into detail about all of these kinds of things, which is really good. Um, yeah, let's talk. And what, some of this stuff is taboo. You just mentioned, I mean, a lot of it is taboo. Like you're, you're mentioning the pelvic floor experts. Nobody wants to talk about that. Not nobody wants to talk. Right. Women don't want to discuss their incontinence. No. The OBGYN no. doesn't have time for it. So you have a lot of taboo, right. to yeah, topics. Um, I, I think yeah. they're, ta they're taboo, but they're also quite universal. And I do want to mention, actually, insurance in many cases does pay for these people. You just have to call them and find out. So I, my pelvic floor therapy was covered. My acupuncture visits were covered at like 70%. My insurance is okay. I wouldn't call it great. Um, it's, I actually upgraded my plan because I did some research and obviously writing this book. Now I'm, you know, a, a, an overly informed uh, consumer of all of this. But it actually, if you have private insurance, it actually can be quite surprising what it will cover. There are also wonderful services like Maven that allow you to access these experts um, via video chat, like from the comfort of home. So you can get access to lactation consultants and other uh, nutritionists you know, doulas, therapists, all of these things, uh, you know, not only not leaving your baby, but also, um, you know, at a much lower cost than it would be in person. So I just wanted to add that, you know, telemedicine is really starting to open up some of these practitioners for people who, um, you know, who don't have insurance or um, just, you know, need help at home. That's a case for the we are pregnant where your partner can perhaps do a lot of that when maybe you're in a much more physically vulnerable position so that uh, yeah. you can, sh yeah, you can share in, in, in the responsibilities. What about, uh, you talk about in the, uh, cause I think this is important, a prenatal care timeline. What is that? Um, well, so there is, you know, I think a lot of people go into a pregnancy thinking, oh, I'm going to see my doctor all the time. And, you know, it's going to be very high touch and, you know, they're going to be there at birth. And this is an area that I am constantly warning friends who, who call me and ask me, you know, because I'm like, you know, Siri or Alexa for pregnancy these days, which is a lot of fun, actually. Um, but odds are, you know, it depends on the practice, but your OB probably will not be the person you see for your prenatal care 
probably won't be present for your birth. Um, a lot of practices these days have really shifted to a cohort model, which means that you might see the same person for all of your prenatal care, but when it comes time to give birth, it's kind of whoever is on call. Um, you know, OB in specific has a really high rate of burnout because, you know, it's the being constantly on call, being responsible for two lives. It's a very hard profession, actually. Um, I have a ton of respect for OBs after both being pregnant and also doing all of this research. But, um, you know, your timeline for prenatal care is you're probably going to have one appointment every month for the first six months, there'll be one or two, you know, ultrasounds mixed in there right around, you know, 10 weeks and 20 weeks. Um, but outside of that, you're kind of on your own. Um, and these appointments aren't long typically. They're, you know, they're usually like 10 or 15 minutes. It really depends who you see again. And this is why I suggest in the book that you take some time to consider who you want to see, learn more about their model, ask you know, questions about C-section rates and VBAC rates and things like that, if that's something that's important to you. Um, but really, you know, going into pregnancy uh, with as much intention as you can, many pregnancies aren't planned. There's never, it's never too late to have some intention around your care. Um, but really knowing that all of this is, is, this is just how it works in the U.S. right now. Um, there's very little you can do to disrupt it, but this is why supplementing with these other practitioners, if it's possible for you in whatever way you can, even if it's through an app, even if it's through their, you know, therapists that are available via text, there are all kinds of different ways to kind of hack this. Uh, and I just encourage people to get creative. And to read your book and to get the information so that the, what comes, what I keep thinking as I'm, I'm listening to you, um, is that we have to have, women have to have realistic expectations. And you're only going yeah. to have that if you have the information and you really do face, you know, all of the things that can or might or will happen. And uh, I, I think that's yeah. why a book like yours is so important. Um, yeah. Uh, and- and I think you're hitting something that's uh, also become very obvious to me the more I've talked to people. And fortunately, this book has really given me the opportunity to, to connect with a wide swath of, of people. And birth is one area that I think we really have to start changing the narrative around. Because right now, um, there is this very kind of judgmental, you know, what, like it, there's a right way to give birth. And the reality is for many, many people, in fact, over a third of people in this country, um, that is not how they give birth. So there's this natural birth thing, which I always, anytime anyone says this to me, I say, oh, that's, that's great that you want to give birth naturally and you're not using an artificial uterus. Because to me, an unnatural birth means you're not actually, the baby's not growing in your body. I think framing a C-section as an unnatural birth is incredibly judgmental. I felt this way before I had one. Um, it has nothing to do with, with my personal experience. It was more from observing the faces of people who were told by those who, and I like to call them vaginal births, actually, vaginal births, C-section, they're all natural. It all came out of your body. It's all natural. It's good. Um, but really that an unmedicated vaginal birth is like the, the top way to do it. And it will ever forever define you as a parent. I think we really have to move away from that. Um, it's a great goal if that's what's right for you. If you have to get a C-section, it does not mean you're a failure as a parent. It doesn't mean that, you know, your entrance to motherhood is any less legitimate or good 
than anyone else who, you know, did have a vaginal birth, if that's your goal. Um, it's a really big cause of postpartum depression. So what I like to tell people is, and I have a whole chapter about this, is that it's not a plan. It's not a birth plan. It's preferences. You should think about the way that you would love to bring your child into the world and then allow for things to go wrong. And don't beat yourself up if they do, because birth is not something that we can control entirely. It doesn't matter how much care you have. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, there are just situations in the world, and you'll find that this is definitely true as a parent, that you can't always control it. Um, just like your eventual child, you're not going to always be able to control him or her either. So um, I think, you know, before they come along is a good time to start training, uh, training yourself. But yeah, it's it, this whole notion of control is, I, I think, really dangerous um, because, as you know, because you've, you've done it, birth is not an experience that, that we can just, you know, uh, power through. Things go wrong. Things go right. Um, you know, it's really something we just have to, to manage the best we can. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think, again, it is embedded in our Western culture that we can, we have the control. We overcome things. We have the power to do and to, to overcome whatever obstacles are in our way. And that's, we kind of view childbirth, I think, in the same way, which is not yeah. a good thing, as you say, because there are a lot of things that we have no control over. And you say change the narrative, have to change the narrative, have to have the discussion with your partner, your spouse, and your, OB, uh, also, I think that's a, a good conversation, right? To start out with when you yeah, first, yeah, absolutely. That and absolutely. The, I've talked to so many women who, if they have an epidural, they feel guilty about it. If they have any kind <laughs> of painkiller, and I know, you know, as an experienced mother, I we're gonna I try to tell them you're gonna have a lot more issues than an epidural. <laughs> you know, at once you give birth, I know. But, oh my um, gosh. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to see and that. Listen, like, it, it is hard to see that. And, and I think, you know, again, what, so, I mean, I knew going into birth academically, I was like, yeah, you know, I can't control this. But even I went into birth after doing all this research. I wrote the book in real time. So I was kind of researching birth right before I gave birth. And I was like, oh man, I can't wait. I'm going to have this totally textbook, boring vanilla birth, and then I'm going to get to write about it and say, like, see, things can be boring. <laughs> Isn't this great? And of course, for me, everything that could have gone wrong kind of went wrong. I had wonderful care. I had a doula. I had a doula team, in fact. Um, I still ended up with a C-section because my son was giant, and I am not giant. Um, he got stuck on the way out. And before C-sections, we both would have died. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 